piercing the bubble and taking the load. Big good morning, everybody. Good afternoon or good evening if you're looking post-Sunday. And a big thanks, Phil. As we start today, I want to read today's scripture, of course, but also one that precedes it found in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus himself is speaking, and these are the words he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Dr. Luke puts this very clearly before the Sermon on the Mount in his gospel, and it's helpful because however we understand today's passage, it's clear coming from the anointed lips of Jesus, we can be confident it's going to be good news for us. For the poor, liberty to captives, illumination for the blind, liberty for the oppressed, and favour, favour, favour. Let's read today's passage then, and as we do, can I ask you to remember these are not words read from a textbook. This is not a Bible study. This is Jesus speaking himself, speaking truth, speaking good news from his heart, and speaking with the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Now, we're not absolutely certain of the spot, but most folks think it's likely here on the slopes of Lake Galilee. He may well have traveled by boat with a few friends to get there with an expectant crowd sat on the hillside, possibly this very hillside, certainly one not too unlike it. And they're excited, they're expectant, and they're geared up to here. So maybe for a moment I could encourage you, just imagine you're there. See the blue sky, feel the warmth on your faces and perhaps even looking down the slope you can see a few boats at anchor and maybe one dragged up on the beach. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you one of the strangest experiences of my life with a swan. I drove to Bewley recently. I was on my own in Jill's car. And as I drove into the car park where my little boat was about to be launched, I didn't spot anything until I opened the door. And as I opened the door of the car, there was this really animated hissing sound. It made me jump. I turned around, looked over my right shoulder and about a foot and a half away was this swan hissing at me. Now, I've only experienced an aggressive swan once and it hissed too, but somehow this hissing felt different. I thought, well, what am I going to do? I don't want it to think I am after it because then it'll go for me and I'm a coward. So what I did was open both doors of Jill's car and I stood in between both doors and put on my foul weather kit, as it's called. And the swan seemed remarkably happy about this, just popped his head and his neck into his body as they do when they're chilled. But that hissing got my attention. I walked 
quite a distance, a couple of hundred yards, found my small dinghy, but this hissing was in my head, and as I popped into the water in my dinghy, started puttling along, I saw what I thought was swans mating, and then I realised it really wasn't. There was a group of about five swans circling a swan that appeared to be being submerged by another swan. Just very odd. And as I got closer, I was gobsmacked by what I saw. The swan underneath was actually trapped in a mooring line. And the swan on top was stroking its neck incredibly gently, trying to reassure it. And all the swans around, I guess, were lending their moral support or the swan equivalent of it. Now, of course, there's nothing I could do on my own. I called the harbour master and the deal was done. That story stuck with me to this day, and you'll see its relevance, I hope, as we move on. Matthew, the author of our gospel, was a tax collector, a number cruncher, an accountant. He left everything to follow Jesus, threw a party so that his friends and colleagues and presumably clients or victims of his tax collecting could meet Jesus for themselves. Whatever else that tells us, it surely tells us that being called by Jesus changed his life, turned it upside down and inside out. Point I'm making is simply this. Matthew was an ordinary working person whose life was transformed by an encounter with Jesus and in particular the words of Jesus. And just like Matthew, the common people on this hillside, the ordinary folks, hub church folks, heard Jesus gladly and That means for the folks sat there, if not all of them, most of them had a pressing issue or a pressing question that Jesus understood. And Jesus wanted to impart life-changing, life-shaping insights. Now, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, haven't we, the last few weeks, or as Billy Graham calls them, the beautiful attitudes. And amongst other things, Jesus has been answering a question for his hillside listeners as relevant today as it was then. It's a question, by the way, that Harry and Meghan and other celebrities, royal family, have been addressing in recent years. It's about well-being, being truly blessed. What does an authentic best life actually look like? And we've seen, haven't we, to be really blessed, wholly rooted in the good life. We've been hearing it actually looks like being poor in spirit, knowing our need of God. It looks like being meek, having strength, but under control. It looks like being merciful, non-judgmental, pure in heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In other words, it's our inner life rather than external performance or status, workplace fulfillment or possessions. So how does that connect with today's passage? Well, in two ways in particular. Throughout this sermon, Jesus confronts the legalism that had come to define the religious leaders of his day. And in fact, the lives of ordinary folks were blighted by two groups of religious leaders. And we get introduced to them here. The Pharisees and the scribes is the name given to them. Now, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were hypocrites at heart. They were more interested in appearing good, appearing religious than they were in pleasing God. Eventually, it was these same scribes who played a part in having Jesus arrested and crucified. They became professionals at spelling out the letter, the minutiae of the law, whilst ignoring the Spirit of God behind it. Things became so bad that the regulation and traditions the scribes added to the law 
were beginning to be considered by them more important than the law itself. And this led to many confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. And over centuries, the traditions of the Pharisees had the effect of adding to God's word, which of course is forbidden. And the Gospels, if you read them, if you're new to faith, maybe haven't even got a faith, those of you that are long in the faith will know that the Gospels are full of examples of the Pharisees treating their traditions, their religious rules, as equal to God's word. But here's the real damage. However much ordinary people might try to keep the law and love God with all their hearts, their souls and their minds and their strength, the scribes and Pharisees would find a way to slap that down. They'd add more requirements, more rules, more impossible achievements and more misery. And in the process, condemning ordinary men and women who were seen by them to be failing in their response. And in truth, Jesus was not just addressing the ordinary people with this life-changing truth. He was also, by the way, launching a lifelong campaign to challenge and to confront these miserable, evil, damaging and hard-hearted religious leaders. Here's what Jesus had to say somewhere else about them. Same gospel that we're in. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. By the way, phylacteries and tassels were like a kind of ostentatious religious detailing on their clothing. They loved the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues, the church building. They loved to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They loved to be called rabbi or teacher by other people. But Jesus says, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus is clear here. It's as if he's saying, folks, I get it. These Pharisees and scribes were like an ever-present, consistent dark cloud, threatening the reign of disapproval and condemnation, any time you got close to joy or happiness or loving God with your heart. These scribes and Pharisees were full of, you ought to do this, you must do that. And the truth was, adding to God's law, changing God's law, their hard hearts were not sold out to God at all. It was dead religion that they tried to impose on others. Later on in the gospel we're reading, Matthew records and then describes seven woes, they're called, seven judgments that Jesus pronounced against these very particular groups of religious leaders. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Strong language. The religion of the Pharisees caused them to think, believe they were okay with God so much that they would kind of flaunt their spirituality, their good deeds, their piety around. It's almost as if they were convinced by their own PR that their effort and their discipline was going to win God's favour and they wanted others to see it. But in truth, as Jesus pointed out again and again, the religion of the Pharisees was never going to find favour with God. It was demonic. 
It was horrible. It was hard-hearted. It was legalistic and it was damaging. It kept them and others out of God's family. It gave God's law, which was to be loved, honoured, cherished and followed such a bad press that ordinary people were likely to compare themselves, feel condemned, feel unworthy and just give up. The legalism of the scribes and Pharisees was a weight, a burden, a pressure and a source of unrelenting disapproval for the ordinary person. It was this very religious framework, as we mentioned, that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. So the first pressing problem addressed by Jesus in this passage was the religious legalism of the Pharisees and the scribes. The second pressing problem appeared to be the law itself, the Ten Commandments. Most, if not all, of the people sat on that hillside that sunny day knew a text from Deuteronomy which says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them all out. Every honest-hearted person listening to the words of Jesus that day already knew they could never keep the law perfectly. In fact, most, if not all of them, couldn't even keep it for a single day. So maybe as they had listened, as we have in the past few weeks, to the seven beautiful attitudes, the seven blessings, and heard the truly good life, the best life, described, maybe that moment on the hillside they dared to hope that Jesus was about to tell them the law has been cancelled, the curse erased, and at a stroke lift the burden from their shoulders. You could argue the best news would be to do away with the law. Then the pressure, the guilt and the sense of failure would all be gone with one rub of the divine eraser. At first glance, it appears as if their hopes and maybe ours this morning were about to be dashed. In fact, it appears to get even worse when Jesus goes on to say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. You can imagine the kind of response. You've got to be kidding, right? The Pharisees, by the way, were outstanding in good deeds, fasted twice a week, outstanding in church attendance, outstanding in study, outstanding in practicing prayer and self-discipline, and yet none of that cuts the mustard. None of these restore relationship with the Heavenly Father. None of these bring forgiveness. None of these allow them into the kingdom of heaven. None of these things make them acceptable. So the folks on the hillside, and maybe you and I, could be forgiven for asking, well, hang on, where is the good news then? Where is the promised liberty for captives and the promised freedom? If we look, it's there. Because of the Jewish reader that was firstly in his mind, Matthew emphasizes, as no other gospel does, that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In fact, it's striking how Matthew uses a double negative. He says, not a dot, not an iota. The point is clear, and he's underscoring it, underlining it, putting it in bold. We can't alter, add to, subtract even the smallest detail of the law. Jesus is not relaxing the standards of God and neither can we. Many Jews thought Jesus had come to destroy the law, to abrogate it or to deny the divine authority in the law and to set people free 
from the obligation to obey them. But in today's passage, Matthew states clearly that was not his purpose. He came that it might be fulfilled, achieved, rather than annulled. So the law was not abolished or destroyed. If you think about it, his moral law reflects his own holy nature, so it can't change. That is the law for which the Jews were summarized in the Ten Commandments, and which the Bible tells us for all men is written on our hearts. And this law reminds us, clarifies for us, how stuck we are. Like my poor swan, we're infected with sin and that infection renders us incapable. And like the swan in my story, however hard he struggled, however much encouragement he got, including that amazing tactile encouragement, however many others of my species watch on and try and help, I cannot free myself. It reminds us that we have no relationship with the father and his family. We're outsiders with no hope. We owe a debt we are incapable of paying. Our good works, however many, however good they seem, are not enough. You and I cannot break the commandments and get away with it, but we can't keep them in our own strength either. So where's the good news then, and what's the answer? And here it comes, with a big but. But, says Jesus, I have come to fulfil it. Fulfilled means It's been done. Or in other words, Jesus says, I have done it. Fulfill means I've come to do for you what you could never do for yourselves. Fulfill means what has been spoken is now done. He fulfilled it in his life, kept the law during his life on earth, and the standard which was set before mankind, he was able to attain. Jesus came to get it done in himself and in the ordinary people. And the great news then is this. Keeping the law is impossible in our own efforts. Avoiding the curse of the law is impossible in our own efforts. Paying the debt we owe is impossible in our own efforts. It's not that I must do good things in order to become a Christian and then receive forgiveness, but rather because I have become a Christian and I am filled with God's spirit, I have a changed heart which now wants to please God. And because my heart has been changed from the inside out, I'm enabled and encouraged and empowered to do those things which on my own I could never have done. And as you're going to see in the coming weeks, starting next week with Farai and others, it empowers, enables and encourages my God-seeking heart, just like Jesus said, to go way beyond the Pharisees and scribes. We'll see, starting next week, it takes us to a place where we're empowered to go beyond the outward act, for example, murder, and handle the anger and name-calling that might lie behind it, or going beyond the outward act of adultery and dealing with the fantasizing that might lie behind it. So then, to the heart of the message, piercing a bubble or lifting the load. Let me tell you a story about how Andy Kenwood once pierced my bubble. Jill and I were early married. We lived in a little place in Avon Walk on Riverdean, and we were trying to get the house a little bit remodeled and I'm not a DIY person I didn't really know it then but Andy was about to make that clear and I was really proud I cut down some sections of the fence white shiplap fence that used to be in Riverdean then and I made some shelves for a room that was going to be my study and I used two by two bits of wood and I hammered them into the wall I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that 
And we invited Andy Kemble round to give us some advice about redecorating a house and what we could do to make it look better. And I saved this room till the very end because I was really proud of this room. And we took Andy into this room and he looked at Jill and then at me. He said, the first thing I'd do, mate, is I'd rip those things out straight away. I didn't tell him till years later they were my pride and joy. My bubble got pierced. But the truth was it was actually helpful because I realised that actually my best efforts were never going to be enough. And over the years, Andy and his dad, Dick Kenwood, came and did shelves for us, hung our doors for us. Imagine the horror for Jill and the family if I'd convinced myself that the shelves met the standard so much I was going to build shelves and more all over the house. It would have been abhorrent. So Jesus is piercing the bubble of pride and self-righteousness for the Pharisees, the religious up themselves, do-gooders, and lifting the load for the ordinary people like you and me. And the Pharisees and scribes, as I mentioned, had their seven woes pronounced by Jesus, and this really pierced their bubble. Let me give you a couple of others. Woe to you, teachers of the law. You shut the door of of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who were trying to. The elder brother in the story of the prodigal son had his religious up-himself bubble pierced. He kept all the rules of the house. He'd stayed behind and worked hard. But the prodigal sibling, who cried out for mercy, acknowledging his sin against God and his family, was restored fully into the family had generosity lavished upon him and his father's love, acceptance and approval was poured out on him as they parted. The contrite returning prodigal had his load lifted. The elder brother to the prodigal son had sneered at and disdained his brother's true repentance and was utterly distressed that his father might want to shower generosity and throw a party. He had kept the rules his brother hadn't. He was self-righteous, hard-hearted. His repentant brother was broken-hearted, cried out for mercy and received it. The elder brother's bubble was well and truly burst. But for those ordinary folks who respond, Jesus lifts the load. And in closing this morning, I want to highlight two things. Firstly, we don't ever have to compare ourselves. There's a spirit at work here. Many of the religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, in Jesus' day, made a great show of how well they were doing in keeping the laws and all the extra things that had been added. But their hearts were far from God. Self-serving, self-reliant, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. White paint on the outside, but full of dead stuff inside. The evil spirit inside them wanted us to see, to this day, in Hub Church, see and feel less than, see and feel not as good as, and not acceptable. This really should lift a load. You and I don't have to compare ourselves with others and feel less than not good enough. Faith in Jesus is what makes us acceptable. Forgiveness of sins is what makes us clean. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to clean us from all unrighteousness. He's done it, we're accepted. He's done it, we're loved. He's done it, we're in his family. He's done it, his father is our father. End of no ifs, no buts. And secondly, we don't have to stay condemned or feel condemned because alongside of comparison is the common experience of feeling condemned. 
I know I've sinned or broken God's law in thought or deed, and I can feel so unworthy, so far short of the kingdom of heaven, so outside of God's family. There's a spirit at work here too, because condemnation is discouraging, disproving. Our heads go down. Condemnation is the work of the enemy. It never leads to positive action. It renders us useless, feeling worthless and feeling valueless. Conviction, however, is from the Spirit of God. It does us good. It highlights sin. It urges us to confess that sin, repent or turn away from that sin and receive Jesus' forgiveness. That brings utter confidence that I'm cleaned up, made as if I'd never sinned at all. It brings praise and gratitude as Jesus really has done it. End of. Whatever I get wrong or do wrong, there is forgiveness, head lifting, heart warming, mind renewing, family restoring forgiveness. I'm about to hand back to Phil. But as we close out, maybe right now the Spirit of God is alerting you to the fact that your life is dogged by comparing yourself with others and his penetrating light and love this morning has highlighted that. Know for sure that your approval, your love and your acceptance is 100% guaranteed because Jesus has fulfilled the law. And know for certain as you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to wash you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. A great habit is at least once a day, confess sin, receive forgiveness and actually feel it, experience it. And lastly, if God has highlighted some specific sin or two this morning, bringing conviction. Know for sure your forgiveness and your acceptance is 100% guaranteed because Jesus has fulfilled the law. And know for certain as you repent or turn from and confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you, launder you from all unrighteousness. And again, a good habit is to at least daily confess your sin, receive forgiveness and experience it. Filled back to you.